this morning by reading from Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. Um, should be up on the screen, I think, and uh, you can follow, around, follow along in your Bibles as well. But Haggai chapter 2, starting at verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you in all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the wine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. I think the real key to understanding this passage is maybe to uh, understand something about God's holiness. When I was a um, young believer, I was introduced to this book named The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. And uh, to use some modern slang that my daughters might use, I was shook. Because most of my life I had thought of God only as a God of love which he absolutely is, Scripture tells us that. But I had never really considered God's other attributes. And in the pages of that book, my mind and my heart was awakened to uh, a whole new reality about who God is in a whole new way. And I began to realize that maybe my concept of God was one-dimensional. Maybe my concept of God was created in my own image and that there was way more to the God of the Bible than I ever realized. So as it relates to grasping what's going on here in the book of Haggai specifically, I think it behooves us to take a moment and to sort of dive in just for a second into what the holiness of God really means and what the holiness of God is all about and what holiness itself really is. To take a minute and frame the idea of holiness for what holiness actually is. I think it's normal for us to think of holiness as sort of um, righteousness or moral purity or, or uprightness or something in those terms. And, and the Bible definitely associates holiness with those things. But at the core of what holiness is, holiness is something different than that. Holiness means first and foremost to be set apart from what is common. It is to be different or unique in comparison to the created world around. I have an aunt that lives in North Carolina um, who is more like a grandmother to me than an aunt. 
But when I was growing up, I spent a lot of time at, at her house. I spent summers in North Carolina, holidays, things like that. And uh, my aunt had this room in her house that we were not allowed to go in, right? It was the front room. When you came in the front door, uh, it's where all the nice furniture was, the furniture that probably still had the plastic on it, right? And um, if you were part of the family, you were not allowed to be in that room at all. That room was the place where when the preacher came to visit or when somebody special came to visit, that's where you went to sit and visit and talk with the guests. But regular family, you just you stayed out of that room. Right, that room was set apart. It wasn't common. It was set apart for a purpose. That's the concept of holiness in Scripture, right? So as it relates to created things, something or someone is made holy when God, who was himself set apart from all of creation as the creator, sets apart something created for a special use or a special purpose, right? So God himself is holy because he is more set apart from creation than anything else ever has been or can be. That's why Isaiah chapter 6 refers to God not as holy, not as holy, holy, but as holy, holy, holy. Because God is the most set apart and God's holiness is a function of his transcendence and nothing created compares to God's glory and power and purity and his separateness. And so when you take the concept of God's holiness and see in the Old Testament how God applies that concept to worship, when you see how God applies the concept of his holiness to the way that he expects his covenant people to uh, live together and to live with one another and to live with the nations around them, when you see specifically how God applies his concept of holiness to his temple, to his dwelling place amongst his people, the place that the people of Haggai were rebuilding after it had been destroyed, you can begin to see not only why God is so interested in seeing the temple rebuilt, but you maybe also can begin to see why Old Testament worship in the temple was so structured and so ritualistic. Much of it is designed to teach God's people that the only way to approach God is on His terms because He is holy And we are not. And since God is holy, the instruments of worship, the place of worship, the robes worn by the priest, the priests themselves, the sacrifices were all set apart for God's purposes because God is holy and he set them apart for his purposes. And they were intentionally intended to be undefiled, to be cleaned, to be untouched by anything else. And the way that God's covenant people get to approach God or by the means that God himself ordained, by the sacrifices that God himself commanded, by the shed blood of sacrifices that God himself prescribed, right? So there's a reason for the ritual and the structure. There's a reason for the sacrifices. And the reason is that God is holy. And God wanted his people to recognize him as holy and and in turn respond in obedience to what God has asked of his covenant people because he is holy, because he is their creator, because he set them apart for his purposes. And so when we just look at this passage, when we read verses like we did a second ago, verses 12 and 13, let me read them again. 
If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil of any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. And Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. I think when we first look at this passage, I know that certainly I I did, when we first look at this passage, it's kind of like, what's going on here? What is this really all about? Because this seems archaic, this seems weird, it seems bound up in these Old Testament ritualistic laws that really don't make sense to us because we don't worship this way, that we've maybe glossed over in the book of Leviticus when we've come to them because it's just outside of our frame of reference. But in the context of Haggai, These verses are really a parable to teach something about holiness or the lack thereof. And so in verse 12, Haggai is asking if a priest is carrying set-apart meat from some sacrifice in the fold of his priestly robes, and his priestly robe touches something, does that thing that the robe touches become clean and set-apart? And the answer is no. And if we were to be technical about the passage here, What's communicated is that third-degree touching doesn't transmit holiness. And then in verse 13, he asks whether a person who has contact with a dead body, whether anything that person touches become unclean. And to be technical again, can third-degree touching make something unclean? And the answer is yes. And so big picture, what is being communicated is that uncleanness It's passed on to the third degree, but holiness is not. Another way of saying that is to say that uncleanness is more contagious than holiness. And that really kind of makes sense, right? A sick person doesn't get well by coming in contact with a healthy person. It's the opposite. A healthy person gets sick by coming in contact with a contagious person. And that's why our entire world is going crazy right now. It makes sense. So with that object lesson from temple worship in mind, Haggai turns around and says this in verse 14. So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Up until this point in Haggai, God's people have done some work on the temple complex. They've come back from um, being in exile 20 years earlier. They've rebuilt the altar for sacrifices. They've probably done some other work as well on the temple complex, but they've neglected the whole structure. Verse 18 seems to indicate that there's some kind of foundational stone being laid in the temple complex, maybe for the temple uh, sanctuary. But they're 20 years into this thing, and they're just now getting serious about being obedient. And God is telling them in verse 14 that all their work is unclean because their priorities have been elsewhere. Their work is not set apart to God as holy because up until these last few months, they've been entirely focused on other things. And they've been disobedient. And I think we, as a people, understand what it means to be focused 
on the wrong things or the inappropriate things at given times, right? Because when we have an important task to accomplish for work or for school or whatever it might be, when we have a time crunch, what do we do? We clean the house. We mop the floors. We mow the lawn. We uh, clean out our closet. We binge watch Friends on Netflix, right? We do anything but what we need to do. We understand this concept of having priorities elsewhere. And to those of us looking at this call to rebuild the temple from this side of the cross, from a New Testament perspective, we're probably missing how important the temple really was for God's relationship with his covenant people and why it's a big deal that their priorities were wrong. We're missing how the temple was the place that God's presence and God's blessing were to dwell. We're missing that the temple is the place where God's people would meet him. We're missing that the temple was the place where the sacrifices were to be offered so that God's covenant relationship between he and his people could be fostered and renewed and enabled. And how those sacrifices that were to be offered here fostered the covenant relationship between God and his people. How the sacrificial system and the ritualistic worship that happened in the temple, these were all means by which God restored his relationship with his people. And since God is holy for God to be present with his people, there was a careful delineation of who and what could be in his presence. And only those things that were consecrated and set apart could be used for worship. And inattention to these details would lead to a break in the relationship with God and would serve as a reminder of the need for redemption. God's people would have known these things instinctively. So when God points out in verse 14 that everything they worship, everything they offer in worship is defiled, he's pointing out their need for redemption because their relationship with him has been broken by their inattention to detail and their disobedience ultimately. And their status is that they are not set apart, so everything they touch is cursed because God's dwelling place lies in ruin like a dead body. Do you remember the story of King Midas from Greek mythology? How King Midas asked to have everything he touched turn to gold, but soon realized that this gift was not indeed a blessing but a curse because he could not eat or drink or do anything with this newfound power. He realized that he had a cursed touch. God is telling his people here that they have a cursed touched, that the relationship is broken, that there's a need for redemption. Their worship has been in vain because of their disobedience, and redemption is needed. And then we come to verses 15 through 19, and something changes here. Something changes about the story in this passage. Let me read it again. Now then consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. 
I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. In verses 15 through 19, Haggai calls the people to compare their situation from this day forward to their situation in the past. To compare their situation from this day forward to their situation before they began to respond to Haggai's messages. Before they responded to Haggai's first message, this tells us that they were experiencing the conflict and the curses that come from disobedience and an inattention to God's covenant relationship with them. Verse 16 talks about how there are not a lot of crops. Verse 17 talks about how the crops were ruined. And you can sort of find the context for how those are curses. If you were to go back to the book of Deuteronomy to the end of the book of Deuteronomy when Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt and prior to them entering the promised land, God talks about this covenant relationship with his people through Moses. And he talks about blessings and curses and how those are indications of their covenant relationship with God. They were called to love the Lord their God, to walk in his ways, to be obedient Precisely because God is holy and precisely because God expected his people to reflect that holiness. And obedience to what God had asked of them would bring, would bring blessing, but disobedience would bring conflict. And prior to hearing Haggai's call, these people were experiencing that conflict and that cursing in the way that their crops and livelihoods were, expect, were, were affected. But there's something incredible, I think, that happens at the end of this passage and we see it in just these words, I will bless you. God had an expectation on his people that they would fulfill their end of the covenant, that they would be obedient, that they would rebuild the temple, that they would live in light of the covenant relationship that God had with them, but they failed. They haven't been able to. They were in exile. They co they've come back. They haven't rebuilt the temple like God instructed them to do. They're just now getting around to what God has called them to do. But what does God promise anyway? He says, I will bless you. And I think ultimately that reveals something about God and his character here. I think it reveals that there's a divine eagerness for God to inaugurate his kingdom just as he always intended. There's a divine eagerness to do something new that we know is on the horizon in the person and work of Jesus. The people of Haggai failed. Everything they touched was cursed. They needed to be redeemed. They're just now being obedient. And yet God says, I will bless you. God demonstrates an eagerness to bless them despite their failures. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son that Jesus told? It's the story of the younger son who comes to his father and asks for his inheritance. He essentially tells his father, 
I don't want you any longer. I want your money. And so he leaves to lead, to, to lead a life of excess. It's the story of the older son who stays at home and works and serves the father and does what he thinks he's supposed to do. It's the story of the younger son coming to the realization as he's eating pig slop that if he just went home to be a servant to his father, life would be better for him. And so the son comes home, and and we know the story, right? The, The father runs to him. The father puts new clothes on him. The father gives him a ring. The father throws a party. There's a huge celebration. And the older son walks away for a minute and gets really angry. gets really angry that the father is blessing the younger brother in this way. The younger son thought that when he came home, he would not have a restored relationship. He would just have to be a servant. The older son thought that because he did stay home, because he did work, because he was obedient, he would get all the blessings of the father. But what neither of them realized is that their father's love for them was not dependent upon what they did or did not do. Their father just loved them both, precisely because he was their father. The father in the story of the prodigal son displays this eagerness to have the relationships restored, to have things as he always intended them to be. And I think that's exactly what we see going on here in the book of Haggai. There's an eagerness to see things as God intended them to be. God is moving his people and his creation toward the kingdom he always intended, the kingdom that ultimately finds its fruition in Jesus. I think what we see in Haggai chapter 2, verses 15 through 19, is a God that is eager to redeem. Which in turn leads us to two things I want us to take away from this passage. First is this. In Haggai chapter 2, the transition to blessing, the transition away from defilement, occurs in this passage at the occasion of some sort of foundation for the temple structure being put in place. As God's people on this side of the cross we also trace a transition from cursing to blessing on the day that Jesus laid the foundation for a new temple. On the day that Jesus willingly gave himself up for his own people. A day where God did something new to bring new blessings to God's people. To bring redemption to those of us who, like the people of Haggai, only defiled everything we touched. Do you remember these words from Galatians 3, chapter 10? I'm sorry, Galatians 3, verse 10, and then verses 13 and 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. And then verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. As you move on through Scripture, you come to Revelation 21, 22, where John writes this about the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. 
And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Right, ultimately, what we need to grasp is that Jesus is our temple. The ultimate meeting place between God and His sinful people. So that all the storylines of the Old Testament come together in Jesus. He's the ultimate temple. He's the ultimate priest. He's the ultimate sacrifice. He's the ultimate place to find redemption. His crucified body is the shattered, broken temple that rises on the third day to become the real meeting place between God and us. Through Christ, God is recreating His people, His creation to be all He ever intended it to be. And that is how God is blessing us through Jesus, by allowing us to, to meet Him there and changing us to be who God intended us to be. Here's the second thing I think we need to see from the book of Haggai, chapter 2 here. And it's this. The necessity of obedience within the blessing of God's relationship is not minimized by Christ's work. It is instead heightened. Throughout the Old Testament, there's an expectation by God that His people will be an obedient people. That's why there's conflict and curses happening here in the book that we just read. And although that God has done something new in Jesus, that expectation of obedience does not cease. Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Those of us who have been redeemed and have been offered redemption by Jesus can walk in the obedience that God expects of us through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. However, just like the people of Haggai, we too can become trapped in the meaningless cycle of worship without obedience. By persisting in our obedience all while we're going to church on Sunday mornings, going to missional communities, going to DNA groups, volunteering in the ways that we're volunteering, we can still persist in a cycle of disobedience. And it could be that we would end up like the whitewashed tombs of Jesus' day. Jesus said this in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Right, and so we have to ask ourselves this question, are we whitewashed tombs? We've seen it over and over throughout the minor prophets that worship without obedience does not please God. So what is the call for us this morning? What's the specific call for us in this place today? For the unbeliever here today, for those of us who don't know what it means to live in a relationship with the holy God of the universe, for those who may be questioning why is that even important to have a relationship with Christ, right? The call for us is to recognize that God has done something that would allow the, those of us who are unholy to meet him in a new way. The call is to recognize that Jesus has done something 
that allows us to meet with God. Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection has solved the dilemma of how unholy people are separated from God and how we don't have to be. And for the believer here today, for those of us who have a covenant relationship with the God of the universe, the call is to recognize how great a Savior we have. To recognize the blessings we have through Jesus. To celebrate the way that Jesus has both taken away our defilement and given us instead His righteousness. To respond to what Christ has done with obedience. Not because our obedience makes us right with God, but because our Savior has made us right with God. That's the call for us this morning. I pray that you would heed the call of God in the way that the Holy Spirit is working in your hearts and minds. We're going to enter into a time of response, something we do every Sunday here at Redemption. It's a time for us to respond to what God is speaking to our hearts and minds. There's a few ways we can do that. The band is going to come and lead us in worship, give us an opportunity to worship by singing in just a second. During this time, we have an opportunity to give. Uh, There's a giving basket in the back where we can put our tithes and offerings um, or instructions on other ways to give are back there as well. During this time, we can sit where we are, pray, reflect, grab someone and talk about whatever's going on in our hearts and minds that the Holy Spirit might be doing. And also during this time, uh, we have an opportunity to take communion. Every Sunday here at Redemption, we take communion by coming down these side aisles tearing off the bread, dipping it in the wine or juice, and so remembering the body of Christ that was given for us. Remembering um, the blood of Christ that was shed for us. It's a way for us to remember what Christ has done and then to proclaim it to one another. So in a second, we're going to do that. Um, This morning, I would ask this from you. Out of an abundance of caution and an abundance of love for your neighbor, Um, There is some hand sanitizer in the back um, where you can uh, take the hand sanitizer and maybe just clean your hands before you come and take communion. Again, um, that is out of an abundance of caution and an abundance of love for our neighbors. So I would just ask that from you as we get ready uh, to take communion. So I'm going to pray for us, and we'll move on with that. God, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here this morning God, thank you that even now we have an opportunity to respond to what you're saying to us. An opportunity to remember, an opportunity to proclaim that the gospel is good and true. God, that you have offered us redemption and that you truly are a great Savior. God, thank you for that. Thank you for your redemption. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for Jesus. Even now, God, I pray that Jesus would continue to be lifted high and magnified in this place and that we would be drawn to you because of Christ. God, we ask this in the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen.